I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, we'll be looking at verses 26 through 28. And I appreciate your letting me be out of the pulpit these last two weeks. It was good to be away, good to have a few days off, but it's really, really good to be back in the saddle with you here again as we continue our series looking at the vision of a church, looking at those things that we value as God's people. And as we do that, you just remember that what we're doing every week is we're taking a different biblical text that unfolds one of the values of the vision of our church, and then we're looking at that text. What is that vision? As we've said before, it's very simple. Our vision as a church is to transform the town of Flower Mound with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a gospel that brings about personal transformation, community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal, not just in our town, but in the suburbs, the metroplex, and even throughout the whole of the world. That is the power of the gospel. And today, we're going to begin the last of the major topics in our vision statement. We're going to be looking at the topic of cultural renewal. Now, you might be asking, why bother talking about renewing our culture? Why talk about saving our culture? I mean, you can look out there and you can see what a mess it is. You can see the filth and the garbage. You see it in the movies. You hear it in the music and so on. Shouldn't we just focus on being the church? Shouldn't we just focus on building one another up? And just avoid any efforts to change or renew the culture? That's a question that the church has asked a number of times throughout its history and has over times held to that view. It's a view that's called pietism. It's the idea where we internalize and spiritualize our faith and the idea that it has no bearing on the world outside of us. But the interesting thing is that during the Reformation of the 16th century, the Reformers developed this biblical idea that yes, we do need to build ourselves up as the church. We do need to be the church, but all that still happens in the context of this world. And even though we look forward to the eschaton, the last age, as we read about in Isaiah 65, there are still things to be done here, and that there is a way of living in this world through the gospel. And that's the idea of cultural renewal that we're going to be unpacking today. We'll be doing it out of just Genesis 126 and 128. So let me read that with you. Genesis 126. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearing, especially as it's preached to us this morning. And it is from this text that I want you to see that there is, in fact, a call for us to engage in renewing our culture. So as we look at this text, we're going to see four things. We're going to see the mandate, the magnitude, the motivation, and the method of cultural renewal. We're going to see the mandate for renewing our culture. We're going to see the, we're going to see the magnitude of renewing that culture. We're going to see the motivation for why we should renew the culture. And finally, we're going to see the method by which we renew the culture. So let's jump right in and start with the mandate. 
And the mandate is found in those three verses that we read in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, especially if you look at verse 28. If you look at that again, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What's absolutely clear in this passage is that God created us not simply to live in the world, but to shape it. Not just to live in the world, but to mold it. You see that in other places in Scripture. For example, Psalm 8 that we just finished singing. In verses 6 through 8, you just sung it. You have given man dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And so when we look at Genesis, we look at Psalm 8, we see that God created human beings to serve as his vice-regent, right? The vice-regent is the one who rules in the place of the king. We are told in both verse 26 and verse 28, as well as in Psalm 8, verse 6, that we are to have dominion over the creation. So the cultural mandate is clear. We are to rule the creation in the place of God. We're to shape the world according to the image in which we were created. We were created in the likeness of God, so we are to shape the world in justice, in mercy, in goodness, and all those other things which are the reflections of God's character. So that's the cultural mandate right there in the very beginning. Even as God creates us, he issues forth this decree. We are to be his vice regents. We are to shape the creation in accord to his nature, because we are made in that image. Now, there's another wrinkle that has to be added when we talk about the cultural mandate today. The cultural mandate was given before the fall. It applies regardless of sin or no sin. But now that sin has entered the world, it brings in another dimension because sin has marred our rule over creation. We have now shaped the culture contrary to the image of God, contrary to the nature of God. So the cultural mandate today includes an extra aspect of renewing that culture. It's not simply that we shape it anymore according to the image of God, but we have to reverse the damage that we've done to it because of our sin. So now that we understand that, that's the mandate we see in Scripture. We are called to renew our culture First, to have dominion over it, to shape it according to the very image in which we were created. And now, because of sin, we have to renew it even and reverse the effects of the fall. So that's the mandate. But let's look at the magnitude. In other words, let's answer the question, how broad is the scope of this mandate? And again, take a look at Genesis 1 through 28. It shows us that the magnitude of the cultural mandate is truly cosmic. It's not limited to a small portion of creation. It includes all of creation. All of creation is put under the dominion of human beings. What an awesome thing. It is both all of nature and all of human activity, according to verse 28 of Genesis 1. That's exceedingly broad. In fact, for us to really understand how broad it is, Let's answer an important question, which is, what is culture? I keep referring to that term, but what do we mean by the word culture? Now, sometimes people define culture as art and literature and music, especially masterpieces. We talk about this high culture, this highbrow. 
And certainly that is part of culture, but there's so much more to it. Also, it makes sense as we define it to say what culture is not. Culture is not nature. Culture is not nature. Nature is the world untouched by the presence and the activity of human beings. Nature is something that is explained in terms of scientific law, what we would call causal law, right? If I pick up, I don't want to drop this, but if I were to pick it and drop it, it would fall because of the law of gravity. This is something that is determined by scientific laws that God put in place in the creation. The key thing is that nature always acts not according to freedom, but because it must act in a certain way by laws that God has put into place. But as Kevin Van Hooser says in his wonderful little book, Everyday Theology, culture, distinct from nature, culture proceeds from freedom. Everything that is in nature are those things created by God that have been untouched by our presence and our activity, but culture are those things that we do and that proceeds from our freedom. In other words, culture is everything that you and I do voluntarily as opposed to those things that we do involuntarily by nature or by reflex or by instinct. So, for example, breathing is something that we just do naturally. In fact, we even use the word naturally by nature. It's not something that is part of culture. Even even eating, even though you voluntarily choose to eat, but eating is just part of your nature as God's creation. Now, what you choose to eat and what you design and what you, you know, uh, Mexican food versus Italian food versus, you know, Texas barbecue, that's culture. Those are the things that we do. So it helps to think of it in that way, that culture is the world that we create by doing things freely. It's the expression of our desires. It's the expression of our duty. It's the expression of our determination, right? You can even go further and say that culture is ultimately a way of life. It's everything that people say and do and have and make and think. It's everything that we have learned and everything that we share as members of a particular society. Once we understand that, then we begin to see how powerful culture is. We begin to see its influence on us. We begin to see that culture will reflect the spirit of the age. It will reflect what we value. It will reflect what we believe. In fact, culture is the realm of, shall we call it, the objectified expression of those values. The things that come out of our human freedom are put in objective, tangible, touchable form. So the Empire State Building or Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, soccer moms, American Idol, shaving cream, all these different things communicate something about our values, our concerns, our self-understanding as human beings. They are expressions of our freedom. Some years ago, there was a PC uh, game. I never played it. It was called SimCity Societies. But I read about it, and the reason that it captured my attention is apparently you design your city. You lay out you know, all sorts of little things. But the thing is that the city takes on the look of, that reflects the values of the city. I guess you get to determine what the values are. You're going to be you know, uh, tyrannical, or you're going to be artistic and freedom-loving, or something like that. And somehow the very city itself looks in a way that reflects those values. But that's really what culture is. The things that we say, the things that we do, the things that we have, the things that we make, even the things that we think are all expressions of those things that we value. 
That's what culture is. And when we begin to see it that way, then we see that culture becomes a lens through which our vision of life and our vision of the social order can be expressed and can be experienced and can even be explored. In other words, it's a lived-out worldview. That's what culture is. And when we see it, we begin to see that we all live out our values. We all live out our worldview, whether we're conscious of the fact that we're doing it or not. That means that we're all being affected by our culture and by the worldview around us. That's an important point for parents. If you're not actively involved in your child's and forming your, your child's worldview, there's nothing neutral. There's plenty of things that are forming it. Our children today, and perhaps not only our children, are living in worlds that are being projected by television and movies and comic books and video games and the Internet. And if you're not actively involved in shaping that, these things will shape your kids' worldview and will shape their culture. Uh, those are things that, um, if you want to avoid that, we can talk about next week because we're going to be examining next week how we can read our culture and understand it. But for today, I just want you to see just how broad the magnitude of culture, how broad culture really is. It extends over all human activities, what we say, what we think, what we do, what we have, what we make. And the amazing thing that we see in Genesis 128 is they were called to have dominion over all of it. That's how broad this call is. In fact, if I may again simplify, you can say that culture is nothing other than the expression of our dominion over the created world and over all of human society. The question is whether it's a good culture that reflects the image in which we're made or whether it's a culture that has marred by sin. And the reality is that our culture has been marred by sin. That's why we're called to not simply have dominion over it, but to renew it. Because everything that we, again, that we say and do and make and think and have, all of it has been tainted by sin. We have to recognize that. It's not just our literature. It's not just our art. It's not just our music. It's not just our movies. But it's also how we do work, how we do politics, how we do science, and so on. All these things have been tainted by sin because nothing is neutral. Nothing is untainted. And so that introduces, like like I said earlier, an extra element. We're to have dominion over all of it, but now we also have to renew it. So that's the magnitude of the cultural mandate. It's a pretty, pretty big task. The next question then to ask is, well, what drives us to do it? Why should we do it? What motivates us? And that's the third thing, the motivation of this. In his book called On Christian Doctrine, the 5th century theologian Augustine pointed out that everything in creation, everything in creation, ultimately is a sign pointing to the goodness of the Creator. Augustine goes on to show that if this is true, and it is, then it is only God who is to be enjoyed as an end in himself. He is the only thing, if we can use that word uh, uh, reverentially, in, in existence that is deserving of being enjoyed in and of himself. Lines up with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? Question one, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So God is the only thing that is to be enjoyed in and of himself. Everything else then you can think of, music and cathedrals, literature, married love, whatever it is, all these things are to be used in a way that points us to the source, to the destiny of our meaning and existence. They all point us back to God. An easy way of saying it is we exist because of God and we exist for God. 
So when we begin to talk about what is the motivation behind our fulfilling the cultural mandate, we find it. If you look in your bulletins, I printed an extra verse. This one was free of charge. You don't have to pay for this one, but we included it this morning. 1 Corinthians 10.31. It's one of those that you ought to memorize. The apostle says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. That is our motivation for engaging culture, renewing culture. Because in the end, everything around us is meant to point to his goodness. We've messed it up with our sin, so we have to work now even doubly hard to rein in all these things, to redeem them, and to again let them reflect the goodness of God. That's what motivates us. We want to bring all of creation under our dominion as God's vice regents for the glory of God. Of course, this introduces the biggest problem that we have as human beings. And that is because of the fall, because of our rebellion against God, our sinful nature, quite frankly, wants nothing to do with God. And we begin to take all these things which are supposed to reflect his goodness, and we want them to point to us. Wasn't that the whole problem in the garden anyway? We wanted it to be about us rather than about God. And this is the biggest challenge that we have Today, But this is the good news, whereas we want nothing to do with God, God is committed to his creation. God is not going to stand idly by and let us mess up that which he declared to be very good. And he has intervened into human history. He has intervened into the cosmos. When we talk about the gospel, the word gospel simply means good news. The best news you can ever hear is that God is fixing what we messed up. That's what the gospel is about. That's what the coming of Jesus Christ is about. Jesus is God come in the flesh to do what you and I cannot do, what we fail to do and what we cannot do on our own anymore. When we think about the gospel, it's so limited when we just think about, oh, you believe in Jesus and it's like getting a get out of hell free card. No, that, that's so limited. The gospel is about Jesus Christ or through Jesus, God doing this work where he is restoring the whole of the creation, the whole of the cosmos, and the way that things were, the way that they ought to be. It is truly cosmic in scope. The gospel outdoes any Marvel Avengers movie or anything like that. What is it? The blip? The, the, the blip is nothing. You know, the, or what is it when people come back in the Avengers? You know? Okay, that's good. That's nice. I'm glad the Avengers brought back people who had blipped away for five years. It's nothing compared to the scope of what Jesus is doing. He's fixing everything, as we were reading about in Isaiah 65, and he's fixing it forever. And all the things that we've messed up will be undone, and they will be fixed permanently. That's the gospel. And it's because Jesus does what you and I can't do. Jesus becomes the perfect vice regent. Jesus is the ultimate vice regent who perfectly fulfills the cultural mandate and does it in our place. That's the gospel. If you read Psalm chapter 2 or Psalm 110, and if we had time, we'd go and do it. So this is something you can do later today in your Lord's Day meditations. But if you read Psalm 2 or Psalm 110, those are known as messianic psalms. They're all about Jesus, and they're all Jesus singing them. But in special ways, these point to certain things about Christ. And we see that everything is to be placed under the rule of the Messiah, who then in turn places it under God's rule.
So what we're seeing is Jesus is that vice regent. He does what you and I could not do. He extends his rule over all the creation, perfectly fulfills it, turns it back to God. And that ultimately is what the cross is all about. The cross is the beginning of this process of restoration, this beginning of renewing both nature and human culture. Now, the natural world, as we read in Isaiah 65, will await the return of Christ, the renewal of the natural world, I should say. We read in Romans 8 that the whole of creation already even now is groaning under the effects of sin. That's why there's still death. That's why we still grow old. That's why there's you know hurricanes and disasters and all these terrible things that are here now simply to get our attention to remind us, this is what you wanted. You wanted life without God. This is what it looks like. Those things will be renewed when Jesus returns. But even now, the process of renewing human culture has begun. Right? We read in 2 Corinthians 5.17, as part of our assurance of pardon, as our declaration of forgiveness, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Right? A new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. It begins with a new species of human, a new human race, the followers of Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, through the cross, that process of redeeming and renewing human culture begins. It's a wonderful thing. If you take a book like Ephesians, right? The first three chapters of Ephesians, half the book, is Paul talking about how God has created this new society, this new human race, and it's us. It's the church. And we are the ones being called as a renewed people to engage our culture and to continue Jesus' program of renewal. Colossians, Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That was our reading for before our confession of sin, because that's what we're called to do. And we can do it because Jesus has already redeemed us and made us now a new creation. It's not something that awaits the eschaton. It's what we're called to do now. And that leads to the last point I want to talk about, which is method. How? How do we renew the culture as God's people? Well, in order to get a handle on that, let's use some imagery that Peter uses. If you were to look at the first two chapters of Peter, you see that he hearkens back to the Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, when the people of God had misbehaved, they had rebelled against God, they had sinned, they had forgotten God, they had turned their backs on him. God is still committed to them, but he disciplines them. And what he does is he takes them out of the promised land and he sends them into exile in Babylon, where they are to remain 70 years. And this is a huge and traumatic event for Israel because they're saying, we're God's people. As long as we're God's people, we're special and we're privileged and nothing can happen to us. And God said, uh, not so much because I'm the one who's in charge of history. You're not obeying me. You're only giving me lip service. I need to purify you. I need to turn you into what really I want you to be, so I'm going to exile you and put you in Babylon for 70 years. And we're told all throughout the New Testament that that is a picture of what we are like. We were in the garden. We had That was the promised land. We had everything that God had given us. We rebel against God. We really We know he's there, but we give him lip service. And so God exiles us for these years in our life until he returns and we are brought, as it were, back to the promised land. So Peter makes that very clear in the first two chapters of his first letter, 1 Peter 1 through 2. He points out how the physical exile of the Jews into Babylon is really a symbolic picture of our exile in a sinful world 
awaiting the renewal of that world in Jesus. But what he goes on then to say is, as exiles, we have a responsibility even, even in exile. We're not to sit there and spiritualize our faith. We're not to sit there and simply say, all right, I'll just sit here until Jesus comes and then everything will be fixed. We are to begin, as we've already seen in the cultural mandate, to begin engaging the culture around us and redeeming it for Christ. Peter calls us resident aliens. That's a term that we've all become familiar with because immigration debates and all that have been raging for, what, the last 10, 15 years? Maybe you yourself have been a resident alien. Maybe you've come into this country or you know someone that has, and you know you get a little card. We call it a green card here. It means that you are an outsider, but you are now resident here. Well, Peter tells us that we are all outsiders because we now belong to a different kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And even though that's our true home, And one day we will reside once again in the full expression of that, in the new heaven and the new earth of which we read about in Isaiah 65. For now, we live in this world. And we're not called, according to Peter and others, to sit idly by. But we are called to engage the culture. There is a classic example of that in Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah is the exile prophet. He was the prophet. uh, Peter's writing about us now looking back to the exile. Jeremiah lived the exile. Jeremiah was God's prophet calling God's people back to repentance during the exile. What's very interesting is what he says in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. You might want to turn there. Jeremiah 29, 47. Because you would think that he would say, right, the way sometimes we spiritualize our faith, have nothing to do with these pagan Babylonians. Don't get near them. Don't touch them. Every chance you get, put on a um, uh, guerrilla action, become the resistance, take them down, do everything you can, because they're the enemy. That's not what he says at all. Jeremiah 29, which First Peter builds on, is a classic example of how we are to behave as resident exiles in this fallen world, knowing that this is not our final destination, and yet we have a responsibility. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent, notice, God who sent them, who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. What an amazing passage. This is where you live now. Yes, there is a promise that I will bring you back to Jerusalem. There is a promise that you will re-enter the promised land. But I have a plan for you. You have to be molded. You have to be shaped. You have to be refined. In the meantime, you will live in Babylon. And while you're there, belong. Build houses. Live out your life. Go on getting married and having children and building families. And seek the good of this country in which you are in. Seek their welfare. Do the things for them that you would want done to you. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's an amazing passage because nowhere are Jews in all of the book of Jeremiah 
uh, told to become Babylonian. They are consistently being called to keep their identity as God's people distinct. They're not to assimilate culturally to the Babylonians. We've heard that before. Jesus says in John 17, what? You are to be in the world, but not of the world. So we are being called not to assimilate to the godless culture around us, but to be deeply involved in the economic and cultural life of our Babylon, which is why the book of Revelation uses Babylon for the pagan world, for basically the unbelieving world. We are called to seek the peace and the prosperity and the common good of those around us. And that's how we live. That's the method by which we live as resident exiles. Well, let me give you just, with a, our time is almost up, so let me just give you a few practical things. I didn't come up with these. I got them years ago from one of my professors, Tim Keller. And there are just three ways in which you can engage the culture so that we can indeed seek out their welfare. And as Jeremiah says, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The first thing that Tim says is that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we looked at that just a few weeks ago as one of our principles of our vision. We looked at Luke 19, 25 through 37. That was the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we saw there that the question is not, who is my neighbor, but who am I to be neighborly to? And we saw that we are to show love to anyone who God brings within our sphere of influence, whether that be family or friend or even foe. Paul, of course, follows up with that thinking, that famous line in Galatians 6.10, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, when we love our neighbors, when we serve our neighbors, pagan or Christian alike, when we look out for their well-being in every way, then we're all working for the common good of our neighborhood and our city. You don't have to worry about fixing the world. Just focus on showing love to those people around you. Family, friend, or foe. And when you do that, that changes and that molds the culture. Simple things. If you sit there and your neighbor is an unbeliever and sometimes he does things that irritate you because he doesn't, he's not considerate or whatever, okay. You sit there and you say, it doesn't matter. If I see somebody bursting into, breaking into his house, I'm not going to sit there and say, huh, serves him, you know, right? No, you're going to help him defend his home. You're going to call the cops or you're going to do things, right? You look out for his welfare, and in so doing, you make your neighborhood safer, and therefore you make your life better. Really straightforward. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the First Great Awakening, once wrote, and I think this is printed for you in the beginning of your bulletin, but Jonathan Edwards once said, a man of a right spirit is not a man of narrow and private views, but is greatly interested and concerned for the good of the community to which he belongs, and particularly of the city or village in which he resides, and for the true welfare of the society of which he is a member. So we are called to truly engage in seeking out the welfare of those around us, and we are to to advance those things which advance our culture. Look all throughout the age. Christians have done that. It's Christians who have worked tirelessly to abolish slavery in the 17th and the, uh, the 18th and 19th century. It was Christians who worked to repeal child labor laws. It was Christians who worked to open voting rights to all citizens, to extend civil rights to all people, to begin programs and ministries that reached out to the poor and the needy and the sick and the helpless. And every time we did that, we enriched our culture. We redeemed our culture. And in looking out for their welfare, we increased our own. 
So the first thing you do, if you want to think of a method, is love your neighbor as yourself. The second is work for the glory of God. Work for the glory of God. Everything that you do in one sense is work. Do it all for the glory of God. Again, that passage that we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that's because work is never neutral. Nothing that you do or say or make or have or think is neutral, right? All cultural production has a value attached to it. So in every profession, in every vocation, and we'll be talking about vocation soon, but in every uh, profession and vocation, what you believe affects how you do your work. There is no neutral way of doing accounting. There is no neutral way of teaching. There is no neutral way of changing diapers. You might think so, but it's not. Every one of those things is affected by how you believe. So if we practice in our profession, if we practice our profession in ways that are informed by our Christian faith, for example, how you practice law or how you practice medicine or how you supervise your employees or how you make a sale or how you teach in the classroom or how you do art, whatever, if you do those things in a way that's informed by our Christian faith, it will change our society. So we are to work for the glory of God in our professions, in our vocations. And again, I'll talk more later at the end of our vision series here on the idea of vocation or calling. But that's the one thing. There's nothing neutral. And be engaged in your vocations in a way that glorifies God. And the very last thing that you can do in terms of method is you can be the salt and light of this world, of your world. Of course, that's a reference to the way Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but instead on a stand, and it get lights to all, gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we're called to be this light that shines, this city set on the hill. And with all due respect to Ronald Reagan, this was not a political statement. This is a statement about how you live out your life. And the things that you show, they need to be visible. When I was in Space Command, I served in the largest squadron at that time in all of Space Command. Over 200 people. And when I first arrived, I could only find one other believer. My friend, Robert Huckleby, who was a Pentecostal Christian. Here I am, a Reformed Christian. He's a Pentecostal Christian. But we love Jesus, and we were going to be together. And we determined that when we were on the graveyard shift, we discussed predestination, charismatic gifts, and we could differ. But during the day shift in front of everybody, we would have a united front for Jesus. And as we began to do that, we began to discover that there were other Christians there. And they began to be bold to step out. But for all those that time, they were covered up. They were these lamps who had put a basket over their light. We're being called to be that light. Let the world see these things. And when we do that, non-believers, Jesus says, will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He also says that we are to be the salt of the earth. And what does salt do? It preserves food. That's how it was used in the ancient world. So when you are faithful in your obedience, when you are centered in the gospel, 
and you obey, not because it earns you anything in Jesus, but because you do so out of gratitude for what God has done. When you are moral and upright, it keeps our society from deteriorating morally and deteriorating socially and deteriorating culturally. We need to hear that today because Christians are living just like the world. And Jesus says that the salt has lost its saltiness. What good is it? It's only good to be thrown outside and trampled. Is that what's happening in the church today? Is that why we have no effect? Is that why our culture is deteriorating morally and socially in every way? Because we don't live this way. But when we stand firm on Christ and we live out his way of living, that new way of human being, of of being human, that redeemed life, then it helps to preserve our culture. Not only does it call people to Christ ultimately, but it just preserves our culture. If we're all not stealing and not, you know, uh, being sexually immoral, if we're not cheating on our taxes and on our bosses at work and so on, it helps to preserve the world. We seek its welfare and it results in our welfare. Now, mind you, let me just be honest. First Peter talks about this in chapter two, verse 11. The whole world is not going to be transformed by this. Transformation will only occur when Jesus returns. But there is something for us to do now. 1 Peter 2.11 says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and they will, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They may not glorify God now. They may curse you. They may even fight against you and perhaps even kill you. That time is coming. Living out the gospel is highly offensive. They will speak out against you. You're never going to be embraced fully by the world. You're never going to be accepted by the world. If that's what you're seeking, then you have to make a choice. Am I for Jesus or am I for the world? Can't be both. And you know what Jesus says about those who are lukewarm? He's going to just spit you out. doesn't have time for you. It's unrealistic to think that we're going to transform all of society right now. But we can begin to live as sojourners already showing people what that new kingdom is like. Think about that. Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians 5 ambassadors. What is an ambassador, a representative of the king? Think of it this way. You are a little bubble of the eschaton. Hmm? That is the church. The church, can I use some technical seminary language? This will get Brandon and Ryan really all jazzed up. You as believers, the church is the intrusion of the eschaton into the current time-space reality. What does that mean? It just simply means that the future, when God makes all things new, you already are a little bubble of that walking through a pagan, messed-up world. And when people see you, they see what the kingdom is going to be like. We're not going to transform it fully. But on the day of visitation, that's the day when Jesus returns. He's going to visit us. Everybody will give glory to God, and they'll say because of what he did and because of what she did. I got to see what this was about. What an amazing thing. So that's our method. Our method has to be centered on the gospel. It's not about power. It's about service. So as we wrap this up, I want you to see that. We're called to love and to serve our neighbors and our town, right? And if you do that, Doing it, centering on the gospel, there will definitely be social change. Our culture will be, to a certain extent, renewed. We've seen that over the centuries. 
Loving our neighbor has brought about massive change. Today, we've become like our culture, and that's why there's little change. We need to renew that. But the key thing to seek and to understand here is that we're never seeking to take over our society. We're never seeking to control our society as an end in itself. That got us into trouble in the Middle Ages. It got us in trouble in the 80s, the moral majority and Christian coalition and all this, trying to go through politics. That's not what we're being called to do. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote for good measures and we shouldn't use politics, but as they say, politics is downstream from the culture. Change the culture, the politics will follow. Serve the people around them. Show them the love of Christ. And when they begin to see that love, they see that you're not seeking power over them, but you're seeking their own welfare, they will voluntarily give you a measure of influence in society. It's happened again and again throughout history. If we try to lord it over them, they will dig in their heels and they will resist. If we serve them lovingly, they will voluntarily give us a measure of influence for the good. So people of God, that's what we're called to do. We're called to have dominion over all of the earth. We're called to be God's vice regents, to subdue it and everything in it under the rule of God. And that includes everything that we say and do and have and make and think. That is what culture is. And the good news is that Jesus is that ultimate vice regent. He's the ultimate king who's placing all the creation under the rule of God. And now we're called to serve as Jesus' vice regents, renewing the culture around us. May God enable us to do that to his glory.